Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we followed the rise and fall of Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson. In 1434, he rose from being a local rebel leader to the position of captain of the realm and one of the most influential men in Sweden. But his career, not to mention his life, ended abruptly when the son of the law speaker of Nerke planted an axe in his head. When Engelbrecht was gone, the king and the nobility met for one more round of talks. As you may remember, there were quite a few rounds of talks in the last episode. This time, they were back in Kalmar, where King Eric had been crowned almost 40 years before. The two sides reached a deal about how to rule Sweden going forward, and they held an elaborate reconciliation ceremony in the city's main square to mark the occasion. Unfortunately though, at this round of talks, much like all the previous rounds of talks, the king and the nobles more or less completely ignored the plight of the peasants, the very same peasants who had started the rebellion and catapulted Engelbrecht into a national leadership position. These people did not fail to notice that their concerns went unaddressed and they weren't going to accept that. Today, we'll get to see what happens when you ignore the complaints of medieval peasants for too long. Episode 61, The Perfect Storm. Before leaving Kalmar after that elaborate ceremony of reconciliation, where King Eric raised the remorseful Swedish aristocrats from their knees as a symbol of forgiving them, the king and the Swedish nobles decided to meet again. The meeting was set for September, and this time they'd meet in the town of Söderköping. Today something of a backwater town, but back then an important port on the Baltic coast south of Stockholm. The purpose of this gathering was for Eric of Pomerania to formally resume his role as king of Sweden. But the king never made it to Söderköping. After the ceremony in Kalmar, he went to Gotland, where his ships were hit by a storm and scattered so thoroughly that he wasn't able to leave the island. In the meantime, the Swedish nobles did arrive in Söderköping. Keeping appointments in the Middle Ages wasn't as easy as it is today. These days, heads of state going about official business will follow an exact schedule drawn up weeks, if not months, in advance, stating when, on the minute, they will arrive at their carefully stage-managed meetings and when they will depart. For medieval monarchs, traveling was a much more approximate business. Depending on the winds, the weather and a whole host of other factors, you could be delayed by days, even weeks, even if you were the most powerful and important person in the realm. In addition, there was really no way for you to communicate that you were running late. No one knew why you didn't show up on time, and when or even if you'd eventually make it. So there these assembled Swedish nobles were, lolling about in Söderköping, waiting for their no-show of a king. At first they couldn't have been particularly worried, but then the first news of the storm reached the town, and eventually a rumor started that King Eric had been caught up in the storm, which he had, and that he'd drowned in it, which he hadn't. Eric was very much still alive, but he hadn't been able to get a message to Söderköping, so the increasingly restless nobles eventually drew the conclusion that he had in fact died. Or maybe they wanted to draw that conclusion, because it was convenient for them. It's hard to know for sure. 
Whether they believed it or not, the assembled Swedish nobles jumped at the opportunity to declare the king dead and appointed Christer Nilsson Vasa and Karl Knudsson Bunde as joint captains of the realm. They also fired all foreign governors still in Sweden and divided the castles these foreigners had occupied between themselves. As they were sitting there, granting each other lands and castles, some of the nobles started bickering over the spoils. One of them, a knight called Bruder Svensson, verbally attacked the newly reappointed captain of the realm, Karl Knutsson, accusing him of all kinds of mischief. That turned out to be a serious mistake, since Karl Knutsson wasn't one to brush off public criticism with a shrug. Instead, he had Bruder Svensson arrested, sentenced to death and immediately beheaded. It's unclear whether Karl Knutsson had this knight executed merely because of a squabble over lands, or if he perceived Broder Svensson as a potential political rival, since the complaining knights had been one of Engelbrecht's close allies. The official explanation for the execution was that he'd behaved poorly to peasants, stealing from them and mistreating them. But since so few others were punished for that crime, it seems highly unlikely that Bruder Svensson's verbal attack and accusations against Karl Knutsson had nothing to do with his downfall. Either way, the beheading of Bruder Svensson would have momentous consequences. But it took some time for Karl Knutsson to realize this. He must have been in a pretty good mood when he left Södershepping. Not only was he once again captain of the realm, albeit jointly with Christian Nilsson Vasa, he was also going home from Södershepping with a considerably fattened real estate portfolio. As I mentioned last time, he'd been rich before, but now he was one of the richest men in Sweden, if not THE richest. Everything was going Karl Knutsson's way. Karl Knutsson's upward trajectory hadn't gone unnoticed by others, and some of the people who noticed weren't necessarily his biggest fans. One of the people who were annoyed by the rising star of the Captain of the Realm was Erik Puke. Remember him? He was one of Engelbrecht's closest allies and the son of Nils Gustafsson, the law speaker from Uppland, who had been the first high-ranking nobleman to join Engelbrecht's rebellion. Erik Puke's own career was stalling. He was extra angry at Karl Knutsson for taking Vesteros for himself when the castles of the land were distributed at Södershepping. As you may remember, Erik Puke's father had been giving Vesteros by Engelbrecht as a thank you for joining the rebellion and giving it a much-needed boost of legitimacy back in the day. The old law speaker had recently passed away, and Erik Puke had assumed that he'd inherit not only the command over Vesteros castle, but also his father's seat on the Council of the Realm. But he'd been given neither, and Karl Knutsson had taken Vesteros castle for himself. And then... Karl Knudsen had gone and beheaded Broder Svensson, one of Erik Puke's buddies from the time they'd both participated in Engelbrecht's rebellion. Erik Puke wasn't only a member of the high nobility, he was seen as the political heir of Engelbrecht, both by other noblemen and the peasantry, many of whom had transferred their loyalty to him when Engelbrecht was murdered. In the face of the slights he felt he had suffered by being denied both Vesteros Castle and a seat on the council, Erik Puke decided to weaponize that peasant loyalty, primarily in an attempt to take back Vesteros from Karl Knutsson. But the resulting unrest would become far more threatening to the Swedish aristocracy and the church than the Engelbrecht rebellion had been, because the latter had been a revolt against a foreign king. This was an uprising directed against a Swedish opponent, threatening not only Karl Knutsson, 
but many of his fellow aristocrats. As so often is the case, our sources aren't the best, but it seems that Erik Buke exploited the fact that Karl Knudsen and the council never got around to actually lowering any taxes for the common people at the meeting in Söderköping where the king was a no-show. The noblemen had gotten what they wanted out of the rebellion, castles and governorships, but had forgotten or chosen to ignore that they had been carried to those castles on a wave of peasant fury. Now, Erik Puke travelled through central Sweden along Lake Mälaren and agitated against Karl Knudsen and his tax policies. Wherever he went, the people flocked to him. They liked what they heard. They had done the fighting, but had been cheated out of their rewards. In December, just as winter was approaching, things started to heat up, metaphorically speaking. In the early days of the month, Erik Puke was gathering a new force made up of local peasants by promising to abolish taxes completely, at least for the year. He also promised to capture Örebro Castle, turn it into an abbey, and then have Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson laid to rest there, in a tomb fitting his status as the saviour of the people. At the same time as he was rallying the peasantry with his rather populist promises, Erik Puke also sent a letter to Karl Knudsen, declaring an official feud. To justify his actions, Erik Puke utilized the trope we're familiar with by now, characterizing Karl Knudsen as a bloodstained tormentor of peasants. Erik Puke continued to spend the last weeks of 1436 drumming up support for a new rebellion, this time against Karl Knudsen, the council, and Engelbrecht's murderers, all of whom he conflated skillfully in his rhetoric. And Erik Puke was successful. Not only peasants, but also city dwellers and even some higher-ups were convinced to join him. He even managed to get a governor in Dalarna, the region where Engelbrecht's original rebellion had started, to abandon Karl Knudsen, who had recently elevated him to that post, and to join the renewed rebellion instead. Erik Puke may have been a skillful agitator, but it helped that he usually had a willing audience. The council hadn't won any friends among the Swedish peasants by ignoring the issue of the taxes and the punishment of abusive governors, so people were already inclined to dislike them. In fact, there was unrest also in parts of the country that Erik Puke hadn't yet visited on his rebel-rousing tour. For instance, in early December 1436, at the same time as Erik Puke was traveling around calling the people to arms against Karl Knudsen, the peasants in Ostrogothia further south were also getting restless. You remember Jens Eriksson, the former governor of Westeros, whose brutality had kicked off Engelbrecht's original rebellion, right? Well, after King Eric had eventually and begrudgingly fired him, he had been allowed to settle on land belonging to the Vastena Abbey, to which he had made generous donations back when he had access to other people's money to donate. The peasants in the area knew who he was, even though he'd never operated in their region. But still, they didn't like the idea of the peasant tormentor of Vesteros living freely in their district. So when the news of Erik Puke's renewed rebellion reached them, they decided it was time to settle some old scores. So on December 8th, an angry mob descended on Jens Eriksson. The old peasant tormentor fled to the protection of the abbey, but he was caught in a building next to the abbey garden. The monks pleaded with the mob to respect the sanctity of the place, but they weren't willing to listen to theological arguments about safe spaces. They were not going to let Jens Eriksson get away. Not this time. But they still didn't want to actually spill his blood in the abbey. Instead, they dragged him away by his feet, with his head bumping against the floor and stairs as they went. So there may have been at least a small amount of blood spilled already there. 
but he was still alive when he left the abbey. That's the most important part. The peasants tied him up, threw him on a sledge, and took him to a nearby town to be tried by a local thing. Predictably, Jens Eriksson was sentenced to death, and his head was cut off immediately. As a final humiliation, he wasn't executed with a sword, as was his right as a nobleman, but with a simple axe. The body was later brought back to Vastena and buried at the Abbey Church. As all of this was happening, Karl Knudsen had started to plan for his counterattack against Erik Puke. First, he needed troops. In addition to his own, Christian Nilsson Vasa, the Archbishop Olaf Larsson, and the population of Stockholm all contributed soldiers of their own. So soon there was a considerable force under Karl Knudsen's command. Secondly, Karl Knudsen also acted on the political level, sending letters to be read at various things, countering Erik Puke's propaganda with some of Karl Knudsen's own. In early December, as Erik Puke was going to Dalarna and the peasants of Ostrogothia were executing Jens Eriksson, Karl Knudsen and his large army set out from Stockholm. They marched westward to find Erik Puke and to put an end to his rebellion. To begin with, Karl Knudsen and his army won easy victories, taking town after town with little or no resistance. In putting down the rebellion, Karl Knudsen was absolutely ruthless and determined to crush the rebels. From his perspective, this was treason against the crown, never mind that he had done the exact same thing only last year. But that hadn't been treason, but a just fight for freedom. You know, do as I say, don't do as I do. Anyway, in Vesteros, a large group of arrested rebels were all sentenced to lose all their property and to die as traitors. After they all begged for mercy and swore loyalty to Karl Knudsen, he pardoned them all, except four. Those four were burned alive at the stake. This punishment had been imported to Scandinavia fairly recently. Usually, this punishment was reserved for heretics, and so by burning the rebels, Karl Knudsen implied that their uprising wasn't just an unjust rebellion against the crown, but an affront to God himself, since he had appointed Karl Knudsen captain of the realm, with a little help from the council, of course. It was also a cruel and incredibly painful punishment, as well as humiliating, since it's very difficult to die with dignity when you're being burned alive. People tend to break down and make a spectacle of themselves under such extreme circumstances, unlike those who are beheaded, whose last dignified moments might inspire others. Karl Knudsen wanted no such dignified inspiration. No last moments of stoic resistance or stirring last words. No, he wanted the peasants to fear what would await them if they dared to oppose him again. After the burning of the four rebels in Vesteros, Karl Knudsen continued on his quest to quell the uprising. He went from town to town, holding trials, confiscating property, collecting fines, and executing rebels when he thought it necessary. He took a break for pillaging and punishing over Christmas, but by New Year's he was at it again. At the same time, Erik Puke was still busy gathering forces for a major showdown with Karl Knudsen. And even though Karl Knudsen was progressing through central Sweden, punishing rebels, more and more regions in the north joined Erik Puke. This put Karl Knudsen in a precarious situation. It's true that he had the backing of the nobility and the church, but would his army, impressive as it was, be able to stand against the whole Swedish peasant population if they joined against him? 
He needed to end this thing fast, and so on January 13th he mustered a new force at Vesteros and set off northward to attack Eric Puke head-on. But the rebel leader caught wind of the impending attack and decided that the best defense was a good offense, so Eric Puke marched south and the two sides met in battle on January 17th. Karl Knutsen's well-equipped and cocky knights on horseback stood against peasant soldiers, who were weaker, but at least smart enough to realize that they were at a disadvantage. So instead of meeting Karl Knutsen's army in the open field, where they wouldn't have stood a chance, they erected barricades in the forest. The terrain and their opponent's arrogance played into the hands of the peasants, who managed to stand their ground in the forest, where the mounted knights could do very little damage. The fighting was indecisive, and instead of continuing this miserable midwinter war, the two sides opened talks, which led to an agreement to a ceasefire on January 22nd. They also decided to continue their negotiations in Vesteros, which Karl Knudsen now held. Eric Puke and his entourage were promised safe conduct, though, so the rebel leader arrived with only a small group of men, including that former governor whom Karl Knudsen had appointed. But the invitation to Vesteros had been extended in bad faith, and Karl Knudsen had no intention to negotiate, or to respect the promised safe conduct for that matter. Instead, he arrested Erik Puke and his men. The disloyal former governor, who was a traitor in Karl Knudsen's eyes, was swiftly executed, and his head was put on a spike as a warning to others who may have considered jumping ship and joining the rebel alliance. Karl Knudsen probably wanted to do the same to Erik Puke, but he was a high-ranking member of the nobility and couldn't be put to death just like that. Instead, he was arrested and sent to Stockholm for trial. The outcome was much the same though, not least since the judge was Karl Knudsen's old buddy, Christer Nilsson Vasa. Erik Puke was found guilty and executed only days later, at the end of March 1437. But at least his head was chopped off with a sword in a civilized fashion. Once Erik Puke was dead and his rebellion was crushed, Karl Knutson wanted to make sure that there would be no more peasant rebellions, at least no rebellions that he didn't lead and control. To discourage future freelance initiatives of the rebellious character, he went to Ostrogothia, where he forced the people who'd killed the former governor Jens Eriksson to pay a steep fine as a punishment for executing the hated Dane. The fact that Karl Knudsen himself had participated in the original rebellion against Jens Eriksson was not apparently considered a mitigating circumstance as far as Karl Knudsen was concerned. Later that spring, the Swedish Council of the Realm met again. The council members were all on the same page as Karl Knudsen when it came to preventing any future peasant revolts. So among the decisions they reached at that meeting was one forbidding peasants from bringing arms to things, churches or even towns. Peasant weapons had proven to be quite effective, not least against noble mounted knights. An ironclad arrow from a simple crossbow could pierce the breastplate of a knight's armor 250 meters away. Now the council members hoped the peasants would come unarmed to things and markets in the future, so if they were stirred into joining a rebellion, they'd have to go home to fetch their weapons first. Hopefully at least some of them would have a change of heart by the time they got there. But there was also a carrot involved, a carrot that would probably prove just as effective in avoiding any future rebellions. The hated taxes were finally reduced in line with what Engelbrecht had originally demanded. 
at this council meeting, it was also decided that peasants would not be allowed to settle in cities or towns. But apparently this had nothing to do with the attempt to minimize the risk of rebellions. Instead, it was due to the fact that even though it had been almost 90 years by now, the Swedish countryside was still seriously underpopulated due to the plague, and it was still difficult to find enough labor in the agricultural sector. It hadn't helped, of course, that there had been additional outbreaks in the early 15th century. Remember, for instance, that Margaret herself died of the plague in 1412. Anyway, the effectiveness of all these prohibitions and limitations was partial at best. Contrary to the intentions and desires of the nobility, the power and the political influence of the Swedish peasantry remained and even grew. From time to time, over the coming century or so, their simmering resentment would boil over into open rebellion. Sometimes their ire will be directed at the Swedish nobility, and sometimes they will join forces with them. But we'll get back to all that in future episodes. Even though Erik Puke was now dead and his rebellion had ended, that didn't mean that all was quiet in Sweden. On the contrary, in the spring and summer of 1437, a number of new and or renewed uprisings broke up among the peasants in Westrogothia, Dalarna, Värmland and Finland. The region of Dalarna saw some of the most violent incidents. The locals not only refused to pay taxes, they also attacked Karl Knudsen's governors and other agents. Several of them were killed by local peasants, among them the new governor, sent to replace the one who had joined Erik Puke's rebellion. The council debated what to do. Karl Knudsen, true to form, wanted to crush the rebels with military might, as he had done with Puke's rebellion perhaps forgetting that he'd put a stop to the rebellion by arresting Puke under false pre pretenses. But sure, whatever, Carl. In the end, the council decided negotiations were the better option. In December, Christer Nilsson Vasa opened talks with representatives from Dalarna, and in January 1438, they reached an agreement. But just as the council was preparing to sit down and talk with the rebels in Dalarna, the unrest also spread to Värmland, the region between Dalarna and the Norwegian border. In the fall of 1437, local peasants there also killed the governor, and soon the rebellion spread eastward. In January 1438, a peasant force marched on Örebro, the capital of Närke, under the leadership of yet another member of the lower nobility, a man called Torsten Ingolson, who had served under Karl Knutsson before. Ingolson had a lot in common with Engelbrecht. He belonged to the lower nobility and he had strong roots in the community, acting on their behalf against the distant but demanding crown. But unlike Engelbrecht's force, these peasants were easily defeated by the local commander in Örebro, who chased the rebels all the way back to Värmland. Most of them surrendered and accepted to start paying taxes again, not to mention stop killing off governors and taxmen. Karl Knudsen's men pillaged a bit as a punishment for the rebellion, but let most people live. But when they eventually caught Torsten Ingelsson, he and another leader of this short-lived rebellion were burned at the stake in February 1438, as the traitors Karl Knudsen no doubt thought they were. As I mentioned before, the unrest even reached Finland. We know that Erik Puke went there during the initial rebellion led by Engelbrecht, but since there are no reliable surviving sources, we know nothing about that part of the rebellion. In the summer of 1436, the Council of the Realm lowered Finnish taxes, as they did in Sweden east of the Baltic Sea as well, but the Finnish peasants rose in revolt a year or two later anyway. Possibly, even probably, because the tax cut wasn't big enough. 
1438, representatives of the peasantry in the Finnish region of Karelia went to see the Council of the Realm, demanding lower taxes in Finland, like in Sweden. The negotiations didn't end to their satisfaction, though, and when they returned to Finland, rebellion ensued. As usual, I'm afraid we don't know many details, but there was unrest not only in Karelia, but also in Satakunta and Tavastland. But in the end, the rebellion ended with the leaders having to escape across the Gulf of Finland to the city of Reval, present-day Tallinn, in Estonia. In a move showing how little principles actually meant to him, the captain of the realm, Karl Knutsson, actually supported the Finnish peasant rebels, because an old ally of his, now turned enemy, was the governor of Viborg Castle and therefore tasked with suppressing the Finnish unrest. My enemy's enemy and all that. The seemingly perpetual peasant unrest even spread beyond the borders of Sweden. And I don't mean like when Engelbrecht marched into Blekinge and Halland, forcing his rebellion upon the Danes. No, in the winter of 1436, some Norwegian peasants revolted without a Swedish invasion. But the Norwegian Council of the Realm chose not to support the rebellion, as their Swedish counterparts had done. But that didn't mean that they didn't take exception to King Eric and his high-handed way of running Norway remotely without even bothering to visit. So they hoped to use this Norwegian peasant rebellion as leverage without having to join in. With a little luck, they'd be able to squeeze some concessions out of the king in exchange for putting down the uprising. Just like in the case of Engelbrecht, the leader of the Norwegian rebellion was a member of the lower nobility, a guy called Amund Sigurdsson Bolt, from the Østfold region in southeastern Norway. And this was also the epicenter of the unrest. There was a slight connection to Sweden and Engelbrecht's rebellion, actually, because Amundsen's stepfather had served under Engelbrecht and maybe been inspired by him. The complaints of the Norwegian peasants were also similar to those among their Swedish counterparts. The taxes were too high and the governors were too brutal. But whereas the Swedes wanted to go back to the good old days of St. Eric, the Norwegians wanted to go back to the good old days of St. Olav. In the end, the Norwegian uprising ended with yet another negotiated settlement, where the rebels promised to go back to accepting the authority of the council and King Eric, and in return, the council promised to strive to make the king only appoint Norwegians to government and ecclesiastical posts in Norway. Furthermore, the leader, Amund Sigurdsson Bold, was granted lands to make the whole thing worth his while. They also agreed that a new steward should be appointed for Norway, an office that had been vacant since Margaret's days. And the seal of the realm should be brought back to Norway from Copenhagen, where the king had used it to make decisions regarding Norway remotely, without involving the Norwegians. As you can probably guess, most of these concessions weren't based on core peasant demands, but things the council had attached when they saw an opportunity to do so. And just like in Sweden, the Norwegian peasants felt that they'd been shortchanged. So in 1438, the rebellion broke out again. A force of peasants marched from the Telemark region in the direction of Oslo, killing government officials and noblemen as they went. Again, just like in Sweden, the second rebellion threatened the Norwegian nobility just as much, if not more, than the king. And so it was dealt with far more swiftly and violently by the local noblemen. The approaching force of rebellious peasants was crushed by a military force sent out by the commander of Akerhus Castle in Oslo long before they had a chance to reach the city. So, all throughout this period of unrest, we've seen a pattern emerge. Despite what some panicking paladins might have thought, 
peasants generally took up arms in, to rebel against individual tyrants or policies, but not to change the basis of the social order as a whole. They weren't revolutionary in the way we think of the word today. They were steeped in a Christian worldview with its God-given social hierarchy combined with a strong connection to the local topography. They knew nothing else and weren't interested in another form of government. Trying to destroy the feudal system was definitely not on the agenda. To most peasants in the Middle Ages, it was obvious that society was and should be divided into three groups, priests, nobility and the rest. Peasants were, to a large extent, conservative, maybe even scared of change, because who knew if the change would be for the better. When they did rebel, they didn't try to break down the social hierarchies, they only tried to restore the just societal arrangements that some evil man had caused to be out of sync. In the cases where we know anything about what the peasants thought about their rebellions, they wanted to go back to some golden age, when society was in harmony and all was well, taxes were reasonable and the harvests were bountiful. Time of war and famine, when noblemen, the church and the royal tax collectors tried to squeeze as much as they could out of the suffering peasant population, were typically times interpreted as deviations from this golden age. Next time, we'll get a break from rebellious peasants, and we'll check in with King Eric again to see whatever happened to him after he failed to show up at that meeting in Södershöping. Was he trying to restore the golden age of low taxes and good harvests? Or was he perhaps failing to live up to the standards of his royal predecessors, Saints Olav and Eric? Tune in next time to find out. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history, which basically is everywhere. Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get a t-shirt, a mug, a tote bag, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you. <laughs>